The following is used with permission of the Columbia University Press. Hi, I'm Ethan Warren, and you're listening to Pod Thomas Anderson, a nine-part miniseries on the films of Paul Thomas Anderson, brought to you by One Heat Minute Productions. Every week, I'm bringing you excerpts from my book, The Cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, American Apocrypha, now available wherever you order your books, as well as insights on Anderson and his work from critics, podcasters, actors, and more. This week, I'll be discussing Anderson's eighth feature, Phantom Thread, with guests Ty Burr, Katie Walsh, and Jesse Barr. All book excerpts are used with permission of Columbia University Press. Phantom Thread is distinct from the balance of Paul Thomas Anderson's career in a variety of ways. His first set entirely outside the United States, his first with more female principal characters than male, while also being among his most tonally unambiguous and narratively streamlined, as stylistically approachable in its way as Hard Eight. In Phantom Thread, one can find a demonstration of Anderson's expanding range, as well as a return to a place of accessibility that some may have feared he had abandoned altogether after the master and inherent vice. You can sew almost anything into the canvas of a coat. When I was a boy, I started to hide things in the linings of the garments. Things that only I knew were there. Secrets. Good morning. Will you have dinner with me? Yes. I feel as if I've been looking for you for a very long time. You look beautiful. Very beautiful. I have things I want to do. Things I simply cannot do without you. Reynolds has made my dreams come true. And I have given him what he desires most in return. (laughs) Every piece of me. Why are you not married? (laughs) Her arrival has cast a very long shadow. She's barely looked at you this evening, has she? May I warn you of something? My brother can feel cursed that love is doomed for him. I don't like the fabric. Maybe one day you'll change your taste. Maybe I like my own taste. Just enough to get you into trouble. Perhaps I'm looking for trouble. Stop! There is an air of quiet death in this house. You're not cursed, you're loved by me. Stop playing this game. What game? What precisely is the nature of my game? All your rules and your clothes and all this money and everything is a game. This was an ambush. Stop. Are you sent here to ruin my evening and possibly my entire life? Stop it! Whatever you do, do it carefully. A gothic romance set in 1954 London, Phantom Thread tells the story of Reynolds Woodcock, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, a visionary dressmaker revered in the global haute couture community even as his exacting standards and single-minded focus on his work prove exasperating for those who might hope to establish an interpersonal connection. More than a few critics have read this characterization as thinly-veiled self-portraiture on Anderson's part. Retreating to his country home to recuperate after a particularly taxing project, Anderson meets Alma, played by Vicky Creeps, a waitress at the local hotel, and the two are immediately smitten despite the unusual form of their flirtation. During their first date, Alma strips to her slip, but only so that she can be coolly measured for a gown. Alma returns to London with Reynolds, becoming muse to the house of Woodcock, but her efforts to carve out a secure place in Reynolds' life are stymied by his fixation on his craft 
as well as the consistent reproach of his sister and confidant Cyril, played by Leslie Manville. After realizing that illness causes Reynolds to become tender and appreciative in a way he never musters while healthy, Alma secretly administers a small dose of toxic powdered mushrooms, sickening Reynolds just enough to make him dependent. The gambit proves an unambiguous success, as Reynolds proposes marriage immediately upon recovery, but this union fails to neutralize his frequent frustration with Alma's idiosyncrasies. Just when it seems they may be approaching a breaking point, Alma proposes an arrangement. At regular intervals, she will dose Reynolds with toxic mushrooms, enough to sicken but not substantially harm him, in order to break his cycles of monomania and strengthen their bond. Reynolds agrees to this bargain, and the film closes with the two giddy lovers canoodling in a newspaper-lined bathroom as Reynolds prepares for the oncoming side effects of a mushroom omelette. With Phantom Thread, Anderson netted consensus approval that he had not seen since There Will Be Blood, and if box office returns were milder, the film grossed approximately $47.75 million on a reported budget of $35 million, a return on investment closer to Magnolia than the heights of Boogie Nights or There Will Be Blood, and its awards impact lighter, it scored six Oscar nominations including Best Picture and Best Director, but only costume designer Mark Bridges took home a trophy, critical responses were stronger than any Anderson had received since Boogie Nights. It is virtually impossible to find an outright pan among major critics. Even the most negative notices, including those by Chris Nashawati, who found it, quote, underwhelming, easier to admire than surrender to, end quote, and Rex Reed, who labeled it, quote, a disappointment, as elusive as its meaningless title, end quote, were laced with enough admiration to keep their assessments above average. Others struggled with elements of the craft and story, including the ending, outrageous in a way that proved a common sticking point, echoing prior Day-Lewis vehicle There Will Be Blood, yet even they saw an improvement over Anderson's previous work. As Mick LaSalle wrote, quote, his strengths and weaknesses are as apparent as ever, but here his strengths are stronger and his weaknesses are obscured, end quote. In her review, Moira McDonald described overhearing one audience member commenting, quote, I did not get that at all, end quote. While McDonald agreed that the, quote, undeniably weird places the film goes to and its deliberate pace will be off-putting for some, I hung on every minute, end quote. Peter Travers, long one of Anderson's most supportive critics, had felt his enthusiasm dim with Inherent Vice, which he described on release as, quote, a struggle, Anderson's first constricted film, end quote. With Phantom Thread, though, his enthusiasm came roaring back. Quote, taking full measure of Phantom Thread may require more than one viewing, a challenge any genuine movie lover will be eager to accept, end quote. So I, I adore Vicky Creeps. I watched her short film that P.T. Anderson saw that made him cast her in this piece. And I think what's so transformative about her performance is, and I remember reading a lot of uh, interviews with her, and she's come out even more now in her new, which everyone has to see, the masterpiece, Corsage. Um, but she's now talking even more about her process and her experience in Phantom Thread, because I think she's, you know, more removed from it. But I love how you're seeing the actual actors, Vicky Creeps and Daniel Day, their real dynamics play out on screen. For example, in the scene um, where she cooks for him on his, uh, gives him a gift, right? The That scene, I don't know how much of that was improvised, but you see Vicky's actual frustration with the actor, Daniel Day, being like, all your rules and your walls and your doors and your people and your money and all these clothes and everything, this, this, this game. Everything here, the whole, nothing is normal or natural or everything is a game. 
Yes, mister. No, madam. Yes. Uh, well, if it's I my, don't eat if, this. If, I don't drink if, that. I if don't. If it's my life that you're describing, it's entirely up to you whether you choose to share it or not. If you don't wish to share that life, as apparently it's so disagreeable to you in every respect, why don't you just fuck off to back where you came from? The actor, she spoke about how she was really confounded by Daniel Day's process, how he was very in character the whole time. I think on set, she's very personable and gregarious, and she was confused by the distance that was there. But in actual fact, that works so perfectly for this film and for the dynamics of the characters. But what's beautiful, she's letting the reality of what was really happening between the two people as people come through, and it mirrors exactly you know, what what the characters are experiencing. So I just, I love that scene. Um, I also love, I mean, her character is incredible, but I love her opening, what, how we are, how we see her character initially. She trips, you know, there's almost this like Michael Frainish, like, um, you know, like slapstick moment. And you see her immediately flush, like the blood fills her cheeks. And it's just such a beautiful, fun opening. And then her, commenting on um, his lapsing tea choice. And she says, very quietly. So you realize immediately that she has her own point of view. She has um, taste, you know, and then of course the like hungry boy. It's just so fun. I didn't realize how sort of BDSM-y it is too. Like who gets to dom and who gets to submit. And, and so I think that whole playfulness, the layer of playfulness Upon my first watch, I think I was more just so angry at him and the red flags of like, okay, ladies, if a man says that he has a lock of his mother's hair sewn into his breast pocket, run for the hills. Or if he literally, I remember gasping when he takes his napkin and removes her lipstick and says, I'd like to see who I'm talking to. And I remember being so angry. And again, upon reflection later, I, it just had, there was much more depth and nuance. Um, and I think I was, I didn't dismiss him as easily. You know, I saw how there were things that, that Alma and Vicky Creeps really enjoyed about this dynamic, you know? Yeah, I, I think first and foremost, what I love about this movie is Vicky Creeps. Um, because I just think her performance and her character is so enchanting. And that when I first saw it, it was like that what it was just this revelation moment of being like, who is that? You know, she hadn't really broken out in any American films up till now. But I but more than Vicky, I think it is probably I think all Paul Thomas Anderson films reward multiple viewings. I think sometimes the first viewing you don't fully get it. And this is the one that I've definitely seen the most, but I also really didn't like it on my first viewing. <laughs> I um, I think it's really important to like consider the context because um, this came out in December of 2017, and like we had just like the Me Too movement had just started. We were dealing with a lot of reckoning of toxic, abusive workplaces and abusive men. And so I had just gotten out of a really like bad relationship too. So as the film started, it was like one of these like splashy early screenings in LA. And um, I was sort of rattled by the what I was watching because you see Reynolds as this incredibly controlling person. 
And people around me were laughing. And I was like, this is not funny. This is not funny at all. You know, I think I was also sort of dealing with like the, the sort of like the context of the cultural conversation we were having that time about like, you know, men and power and sex and gender and workplace stuff. And, but then the movie like turns halfway through <laughs> and pulls the rug out from under you and reveals that this is like, he's not in control at all. And they have a very like almost fetishistic like dom sub relationship <laughs> you know i think that 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 power flip like the first time i saw it i i was like totally like whoa oh my gosh when you reveal that that alma is basically poisoning him and keep him vulnerable the whole movie i was just rattled the first time i saw the movie the second time i saw it knowing what was going to happen I could fully sink in to this amazing, beautiful world and enjoy the performances and find the humor in it. But I just wasn't able to find that the first time around. But, the, you know, every time I watch it, I just I just had it on in the background right before we started. And it's like impossible not to just be swept away into this world and the music. And it's so beautiful and it's so charming. Um, and you can enjoy the sort of power play between them and watch her as she seems like this very innocent, naive person, but she's actually so cunning and see her learn how to take her power in this situation. Rarely has it been the case, really rarely in, you know, 50, half a century of movie going where I have felt that I was in masterful hands from the very first shot and that feeling never left me for the entirety of the movie uh i love at first sight is not something that happens with movies much if at all uh it has happened to me and i could you know reel off a couple of movies a handful of movies that i just you know i took them into my heart uh, and brain and soul the second i saw them phantom thread was one that i was not expecting um i blow hot and cold on uh, pta on paul thomas anderson uh some of his movies i really like they're not always the ones that other people seem to like and some of the ones i'm you know like the master eludes me um inherent vice is a movie that uh, is quite dear to me um uh, but Phantom Thread just hit me on all levels, um, in part because of its time period and setting. Um, it's a period piece in a way that is kind of new for him, uh, although There Will Be Blood is obviously a period piece. But the making of it is so rich with love for craft. Um, that's one thing I admire and, and again just felt in my bones as I was watching it this was a movie made by people who love to make movies and in this case just poured all their love for making movies into this rather perverse love story um, and that's something we can talk about in a bit but the physical surroundings of this movie are so just beautiful they're just beautiful to watch and to listen to I listen to the soundtrack quite often I, I love this film because I think like all great art, every time you engage with it, it reveals something new. Um, I watched it again recently before we spoke and 
I was struck by how many layers there were that I had missed my first, you know, maybe five times seeing it. And also now being a little bit older and even deeper in my marriage and my relationship, I saw so many new things that I just didn't, I don't think I had the, um, the perspective just wasn't there for me before. Um, so I love how it deepens with every viewing. I mean, it's it's a gothic romance, it's a ghost story. I love how, I don't think I picked up on this the first time I saw it, but it is also a memory story, a memory of a love story as Alma is recounting this to the doctor. So there's something about memory and imagination. And um, I think the lushness of a gothic romance really excites me about it how it feels like this period piece, but of course there are these evergreen themes. And I love, I love the layers of character. I think I also, I was so struck by how erotic it was that I, of course I knew it was erotic, but I didn't realize how I really think this fits in under the genre of sensual cinema. And what's so ingenious is usually when you think about erotic um, cinema or sensual cinema, there's a lot of um, sort of uh, removing things that feels really sensual, like, right, even if you think about classic sex scenes, right, it's like unbuttoning the blouse or like watching someone's belt be taken off. But in this, it's the adding of fabric. It's, it's um, you know, watching layers being built on a body. It actually has to do a lot with restraining and almost like not quite bondage, but you know, the layering, the sewing, the addition of fabric, uh, which just, it struck me in a, in a new way, um, how, how, how interesting that is to have it be, yeah, additive versus, I guess, subtracting of the literal, even like clothing, you know. We'll be right back after this quick break. I have an unsettled feeling, Reynolds Woodcock tells his sister Cyril late in the first act of Phantom Thread. The feeling is not caused by the termination of his relationship with his most recent lover, or live-in lady friend, as she is described in Anderson's shooting script, Joanna, played by Camilla Rutherford, whose ousting has been outsourced to Cyril. Nor is his ennui rooted in professional exhaustion following his recent completion of a lavish gown for Countess Henrietta Harding, played by Gina McKee. Instead, this unsettled feeling is the result of a recent and unusually acute awareness of his late mother's absence. Quote, I've been having the strongest memories of Mama lately, Reynolds admits, shifting nervously in his customary booth at an upscale London restaurant. Quote, coming to me in my dreams, smelling her scent. End quote. Phantom Thread is most easily classified as a romance, and the relationship between Reynolds and Alma, the woman who will soon be his new live-in lady friend and eventually his wife, is very much the film's primary focus. Yet that classification belies the complex network of domestic connections traced within Anderson's eighth feature. Running parallel to Reynolds' relationship with Alma is his codependent one with Cyril, Cyril's contentious one with Alma, and the intrusive memory of the deceased Woodcock matriarch, an absent but no less powerful force in motivating the story and its mercurial shifts of emotional temperature. When George Tolles asserted in the interim between the master and inherit vice that Anderson's films deal covertly with the, quote, perilous irrational drama with the hidden mother, end quote, he could scarcely have predicted how thoroughly that thesis would be borne out in Anderson's later story of metaphorical haunting. Um, I mean, he's just so 
is this his funniest performance? Like, he's just so delightful. He's so grumpy. I also think another thing I like about this film is that, like, my dad is an artist and my mom works with him. And so I think I recognized a little bit of their dynamic <laughs> in a way. Not that it's, I mean, obviously this is like extreme and heightened, but just the demands of working with an artist. And I think in this film, Paul Thomas Anderson is probably reflecting on himself and his own relationship with his family. And I, I think it's hilarious that Christopher Nolan's kids call him Reynolds Woodcock. Um, but like, it, and I also think what I really like about this film, and I haven't gotten to Daniel yet, but it's a period that we don't really see and a setting that we don't really see Paul Thomas Anderson work in, like 1950s England, like usually we're in like 1970s LA, but Daniel's just like so perfect. I don't know why he's so great in this. Like he's so, I love his sternness, but also his humor and his um, playfulness. His, uh, I think my favorite scene obviously is The Hungry Boy. Um, the breakfast order, which I am at some point in my life, I am going to make that breakfast. <laughs> Maybe like a little New Year's Day screening and brunch, but um, you know, because there's like mischief in his eyes. And I think that the way that he is so grumpy uh, and cantankerous and controlling, but also allows little bits of mischief and unexpected things to come out of his mouth and and unexpected line readings. I mean, it's just brilliant. Like, I, I don't even feel like it's a performance. Like, I'm like, this is a real person. The sort of love triangle with um, Cyril and Reynolds and Alma. I love the scene where they're on a date, right? The first date, Alma and Reynolds, and he's gonna build a dress on her. And she's in this negligee and you can see her, you know, breasts and she's just the epitome of vulnerable, you know? And then all of a sudden, Cyril comes in with her clipboard and is like a part of the date and like smells her and can smell what they ate. She smells the sandalwood, she smells the rose water, which I also remember then later, Reynolds says there's an air of quiet death. So the smell transforms from this like, you know, lush flowery sandalwood rose water to like the air of death. So I love there's that. And then Cyril starts taking notes on her measurements, right? So she's like a part of the romance. She's a part of the relationship. And then it also struck me how um, the mother that's mentioned, you know, always how she introduced Reynolds to his trade, the whole wedding dress, um, you know, narrative arc and and how in the scene where Reynolds ghost uh, of his mother is in the room, you see Alma come in. So it's like she takes on the role of mother in in so many ways, too, which Cyril also does. And I felt a real I mean, I love how Cyril you think that. Reynolds is the head, you know, but you see Cyril as the neck. Like she really controls everything. And that scene where she's like, Don't pick a fight with me. You certainly won't come out alive. I'll go right through you and it'll be you who ends up on the floor. Understood? It's just so satisfying. And also her character for me, I realized it's so sad. Her, her Cyril is such a tragic character and like, you know, she's unmarried. She doesn't have love in her life. Her biggest lover is her brother, you know, and this relationship. Um, and I was moved this most recent watch, seeing her in Alma's fantasy of what might happen later with the child. And you see Cyril's there, you know, she takes the pram and how beautiful, you know? Um, so I love just the, 
how the love story you think it is, of course, on the surface, just between a muse and, and a master, maestro, you know, sower. But really, there's so many more layers of, um, of a love triangle with the sister, with the mother, with this, um, yeah, funny sort of thruple with, with the, with Cyril and Alma and Reynolds. Um, and I just love, I love that. I love how complicated it is and how interesting it is. And um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's so beautiful. Thus, while Phantom Thread may be occasionally romantic, it is more significantly romantic in the manner of 18th century philosophers and artists overwhelmed by the ungovernable power of the human heart, an awe expressed through, quote, the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings, end quote, that characterized romantic poetry, as described by William Wordsworth. This sense of sublime yearning is common to Anderson's depiction of human connection. Taken in aggregate, his career emerges as a century-spanning study of alienated characters fumbling towards some connection that might soothe their own unsettledness. Much as Reynolds might long to believe that his mother is, quote, near and reaching out, end quote, virtually every Anderson protagonist nurses a primal sense of some lost paradise, suffering the effects of nostalgia, as Freddie Quell laughs awkwardly when questioned about his unexplained crying jag, and they each assemble some flawed coping mechanism in hopes of salving the eternal psychic wound. Surrogate families and father figures are two of the most discussed aspects of Anderson's filmography, but this focus elides a more expansive vision of human connection. Reynolds Woodcock is relatively lucky compared to other Anderson protagonists, being alienated from his mother only by death. The conventional nuclear family tends to be irrevocably sullied in an Anderson film, a base from which the protagonist is expelled or at least eternally alienated. Dirk Diggler leaves home following a confrontation with his mother, never to see either of his parents again. Frank T.J. Mackey is abandoned and Claudia Gator abused, resulting in bitter estrangement even once their father's attempt atonement. Barry Egan may attend family gatherings, but he seems as emotionally repelled by them as a magnet meeting its like pole, while Alana Kane seems constitutionally unable to keep from lashing out at her family over the slightest perceived provocation. The emotionally inhibited Daniel Plainview can only gesture at a similar repulsion, grunting, I couldn't stay there when asked about his upbringing. And while Freddie Quell suggests a rosier past with a reference to a memory of his family in happy times, we soon learn that his father died of alcoholism and his mother was institutionalized, casting the reliability of such a comforting recollection into doubt. As for Reynolds and Cyril, Anderson offers only enough details for the viewer to form a hazy impression of their upbringing. Reynolds tells Alma that his father died many years before his own 16th birthday, at which point his mother remarried, and a handful of subsequent tossed-off lines invite potentially dark interpretation. When Alma asks after the location of his mother's wedding dress, he professes not to know what became of his first work, suggesting only that it's, quote, probably ashes, end quote. For a man who takes such pride in his work and so cherishes his mother's memory, using language that evokes violent destruction is curious. Could there be more to the story of Reynolds' relationship with his stepfather, never again alluded to in any form, than he lets on? We are offered even fewer details about Alma's family. Anderson intentionally leaves her background vague in the finished film, and though the choice is appropriately evocative of avowed influence Rebecca, in which the central character is never even granted a first name, it certainly contributes to some viewers' observation of Anderson's frequent relative disinterest in the interiority of his female characters. Alexander Hemmons sees Phantom Thread maintaining a trend that began with Boogie Nights as Anderson's, quote, obsessions and self-conception, end quote, are repeatedly expressed through, quote, masculinized landscapes in which power is flexed, challenged, then flexed again, end quote. 
Anderson's screenplay offers a few excised lines of dialogue that do provide significant explanation for behaviors that appear enigmatic in the final product. During their first date, Alma tells Reynolds about her older sister, to whom she feels a significant inferiority complex, and soon after she admits that her greatest ambition in life is to be a wife and mother. The fact that these biographical details are left as interpretive potential rather than settled via explicit dialogue testifies to the lightness of touch that Anderson has developed as a screenwriter. More valuable here is the film's status as an intriguing inflection of the Andersonian family, providing the sole depiction across his canon of a central nuclear family's formation rather than its unraveling. I think what's so amazing about this film, and I think what Paul Thomas Anderson has been doing and like with this and with licorice pizza is like kind of showing us relationships and and i don't know people who are like not doing good things necessarily and making them enjoyable and fun to watch so it's this like like when i was thinking about this scene where they tear the dress off of that woman i'm like that's awful <laughs> like they're terrible people but you're also rooting for them and and wanting them to you get the dress back you're like yeah she's a terrible person get the dress back and so even though this relationship which is like i don't know you know you kind of question whether or not it's uh balanced or equal and you know obviously they work out their own ways to figure this out but um they you still are rooting for them you enjoy watching them and i think it's kind of the same thing with licorice pizza where you are like i don't think this is quite above board but i still want them to get together for some reason <laughs> um so i think that it's really interesting that he is playing with this idea of i don't know i don't want to say morality but even like you know sort of like socially appropriate ideas of what relationships should be um and the way that people act in them and kind of asking us to step outside of something that's black and white and look at something that's more complex and understand that human beings are like strange creatures who make weird choices and um that not everything is going to fit into like a black and white morality or rule book and i think both this and licorice pizza kind of play with that I remember listening to um, something that uh, Celine Sciamma said about the erotic and so much of it has to do with desire and withholding. Um, and I think this film does such a beautiful job of dancing between the, you know, the withholding of, of, uh, of desire and then also just watching people desire and and I think, again, with Vicky Creeps' character, Alma, I really loved seeing her step into the role of um, creator or orchestrator. You know, she starts more as the muse and it's sort of the classic rags to riches tale of a, a young woman who's the waitress, right? Like socially and economically inferior. And then she's elevated to this very you know, wealthy world that's so outside perhaps her comfort zone, but you see her thrive in it. You see that moment where she, where she tells him that that woman doesn't deserve the dress. There's like a client of Reynolds and she's high and really messed up and embarrassing. 
in this gorgeous dress and they literally take it off her body. Like Alma goes in and strips it off her because it's insulting to the art, you know? And so you see how she not only, she doesn't just take on Reynolds' point of view and sort of parrot it. She goes a step further. She always had her own perspective and identity and taste, but you see her become more emboldened and step into herself even more. And you see that especially when she starts to cook the mushrooms and, and you know, make him ill because she wants him flat on his back and tender and open and dependent. And that's, I love how she really, even though of course it's in a twisted way, she has such a powerful desire, Alma, and she gets what she wants. She She's not afraid to desire and to go to, you know, extremes to get what she wants. And she does. And I think the first time I watched this film, I remember thinking I was insulted and I felt it was kind of reductive that, you know, muse and um, art master artist trope that we see all the time. And when I rewatched it, I was like, oh no, <laughs> she is the dumb. Like she, she becomes, you know, um, the master orchestrator and, and I, and I just love that there's this reversal, you know. Um, it took, it, um, I have to say, it took me two viewings of Phantom Thread for it to re reveal itself to me as what I believe it actually is, which is a comedy, a very dark comedy. Um, I'm not gonna say a romantic comedy, but a comedy about a romance. Um, and that these are two rather horrible people who deserve each other and nobody else, and who in their universe, their their little every couple is their own universe. This, this I believe, every couple is their own planet, um, and this particular planet is a toxic planet, um, but one in, in which it's uh, there's a symbiotic relationship. Um, she needs to feed him those mushrooms. He needs to eat those mushrooms to show him that he's as good as her. Um, one of my favorite moments in all of recent cinema is Daniel Day-Lewis talking into that omelet the second time, knowing what it is, and taking his fork and just going at her, like, damn you, I'm going to eat this and I'm going to live. Um, it is not a romance in the sense that people understand movie romances to be, which is why there's a lot of confusion about it from people coming to this movie expecting, oh, it's Daniel Day-Lewis, it's going to be, I will find you. It's going to be a traditional kind of romantic um, drama. It's not, it's a comedy about two very difficult people um, that that is also quite in love with these two difficult people, but would never actually want to be in a relationship with them. Um, so as you're watching it, um, and again, I had to watch it a second time to really tweak to that uh, and tumble to that. Um, you may be put off by the fact that these people are not behaving very well to each other um, and or to other people. Uh, you know, uh, Reynolds Woodcock, which again, I think is one of the most wonderful names in the history of cinema, is not a nice person. Um, I think of that scene where, so Barbara Rose is presented within the world of this movie as a, as a, as a, as a villainous character, as a bad character. Um, who does not appreciate the, you know, Reynolds, the Woodcock, Couturier, uh, the House of Woodcock sufficiently, and it's deemed undeserving of this dress to the point where she's actually stripped of it. Um, but if you take us, if you're able to take a step back 
from the movie um, and see these people as really sort of the the beloved monsters they are, you see her actually as their victim. And she's really, to me, one of the saddest figures in the entire movie um, and, and, and quite abused uh, by them. Uh, but again, you know, to me, it's a movie that does a very unusual thing. It, it gives you these characters who are on one level absolutely detestable, but also invites you to, to fall in love with them at a distance um, and to appreciate the twisted love they have for each other uh, as something unique, unusual, um, precious to them um, and and kind of eternal. They'll be chained to each other forever. Um, uh, to me, the movie is, and I say this, um, you know, uh, to me, the movie is, and I say this with uh, without reservation, uh, it's Nabokovian. Um, and I say this as somebody who's read a lot of Nabokov um, and finds these two to be very similar in their re battling relationship to characters in, in um, his work, in his novels. And I don't think that's accidental because, and I've written about this, I wrote about it in my original review. There's a shot toward the end of Phantom Thread where you are glimpsing the two of them. So it's shot from in, in a darkened interior, looking out on a balcony overlooking a lake um, with the mountains in the distance, I think. Um, and they're having breakfast on a, at a you know, little patio on the balcony that is identical to a photo of Nabokov and his wife in Geneva. Um, it's a well-known photo. Um, I could, uh, I actually, got, I think I tweeted that. Um, so you can like search it up if you want. That when I saw the movie, I was like, oh Jesus, I've seen that before. Um, I don't think that's that, that's there by accident. I could be wrong. At someday, I'd like to ask PTA about that. Um, but the but the tenor of Phantom Thread is, I think, Nabokovian in that it is, it has a delight in the cruelty, the cruel games people take, play with each other. Um, and, and really actually finds that a, a kind of sign of life. It was initially hard for me to find the Paul Thomas Anderson in Phantom Thread. How could the voice that gave us Boogie Nights or Punch Drunk Love be detectable in this riff on merchant ivory dramas? On reflection, though, Phantom Thread just proves that PTA can make his voice detectable within any type of movie at all. He may have returned to familiar ground with his next movie, but Phantom Thread still stands as a promise. Jonathan Demme once said he wished for the world to be Paul Thomas Anderson's canvas, and at last he proved it could be. And now we all know that it can be again. <laughs>